This podcast is powered by Pivotal Moments Media. Check out our education, content, and more at PivotalMomentsMedia.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life After the Military, a show completely focused on reversing the trend of veteran suicide, homelessness, and problematic transitions by helping veterans transition from military to civilian life and strengthening the mental fitness of our active duty military members, veterans, and their families. Our show is powered by Pivotal Moments Media, an organization on a mission to strengthen mental fitness worldwide for all. Go check them out at PivotalMomentsMedia.com to learn more. My name is Lee Elias, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Howie Cohen. And we are privileged to have two special guests from the UCLA Operation Men program today, Dr. Joe Sornberger and Dana Katz with us. Dr. Sornberger, whose name I will say Dr. Joe moving forward, as I was directed to do, currently serves as the executive director of the UCLA Health Operation MEND program. She is a certified clinical psychologist who has associated herself with UCLA Health for over 14 years. She also has a private practice. Dana Katz is the director of community engagement and buddy programs for the UCLA Operation MEND program. And Dana has worked with this program for over 15 years. Dr. Joe and Dana, it is our pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Life After the Military. Thank you for having us. No, the pleasure is all ours. And uh, Dr. Joe, I'm going to start with you. I understand Operation Mend is about to celebrate 15 years of taking care of injured post 9-11 era service members, veterans and their families at UCLA Health. Uh, could you tell our audience how and when you became involved with the program uh, about the amazing services you provide uh, to wounded warriors and caregivers across the country? Yeah, happy to do that. Um, so I became involved with Operation Mend in 2009, and it it has been a life-changing experience for me. And I think Dana can actually describe the the genesis of Operation Mend. But one of the major things about our program was that we focused on physical injuries. But what we didn't really grasp at the time was the need for psychological health support, as well as focusing on what are the psychological injuries associated not only with physical injuries, but those invisible wounds. So we really started focusing on that as well, more from an assessment perspective. Operation Mend, I think the gift of Operation Mend really is that we have wraparound care. So we're not only thinking about the warrior, but we're also thinking about the family. And as you all have experienced, when one member of the family has any kind of critical injury or illness, it really pulls the resources to that one person, right. not intentionally at the expense of the others, but that's part of what being in a family is about. So what Operation Men does is we focus um, on all of the family members in terms of assessment and what are the gaps in care. And so that is what developed over to, from 2009 to the present. We were fortunate in 2015 to be able to offer direct uh, services for mental health. We were and are um, supported by the Wounded Warrior Project, as well as um, donations from all over the country. And that really has allowed us to to provide psychological health treatment for our warriors, as well as caregivers. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I I, I love that you started right with the, the whole family is involved because, you know, when dealing with mental anything. I think that both the person dealing with it and sometimes the family can forget how impactful that can be. Uh, you know, having spoken to, to, um, people who have been suicidal have, they have told me that, and I, I asked for a perspective that I got to a place 
that I felt my family would be better off without me. Right. And, and that was a real sobering moment for me to hear that because I, I can't imagine that being true. Right. But when you are severely depressed and suicidal, that, that may be the way you're thinking. Right. So the family's involvement and the effects on the family within this uh, realm are super important. So I think that's, that's just amazing that that's how you start, right. With that 360 approach. Yeah. And, you know, Inherent in any military family is their resilience by definition. Right. That pre and post deployment, I think that oftentimes gets forgotten with, with just civilians looking into the, to the veteran world is that these families worked the pre deployment, deployment and post deployment, which they developed, you know, they exercise that muscle of resilience and then reintegration with the warrior back into the family really created that whole dynamic. So it, it absolutely makes sense that not only the warrior and their assessment for psychological health is important, but also the family members, including the children. Absolutely. And Dr. Joe, I, I'm, I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in here because uh, I, I personally experienced this. Um, when I was a brigade level commander, uh, this was, I, took, I took command just prior to uh, 9-11 and one of the things we experienced at Fort Bragg, which was a, 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 an unbelievable phenomenon, is so when 9-11 occurred, very quickly we started deploying a number of special operations forces and then ultimately the, uh, to Afghanistan. And, then, and very quickly thereafter, we, we, we deployed a, a good portion of the 18th Airborne Corps. I was commanding a, a signal brigade that supported 18th Airborne Corps. Um, but what we found was after, about, after we had that first kind of um, flow into country and, and, and special operations forces were coming back maybe after three or four months and rotating other forces in, it was stunning. Uh, I, I remember very vividly um, in about a one week time, um, and I may not get this exactly right because it, it, it was a while ago, but within, within a, a one week period of time, we had um, several suicides and, um, and family shootings by the service member with his, or her, with his family because we, were not, we did, had no appreciation for how to properly prepare folks to go into that situation and the families to go into that situation and how to reintegrate the returning uh, combat veteran into not only life at Fort Bragg, but life in, with, his, with his family. And, uh, and, it, and it, it took on a whole nother set of challenges where we started to establish um, a, like a cooling off period instead of someone coming right out of a combat scenario in Afghanistan and returning right to the States, they would go to a place for maybe about a week or so to kind of just settle, cool off, meet with, um, with um, a team of clinical psychologists, whatever, to, to help them kind of slowly um, uh, release some of the stress and pressures that they had experienced. And, uh, but, but we, we learned this the hard way. So, uh, and the other thing I'll share is, you know, and I understand that the, the, the program started initially based on combat wounds or, um, what I think another thing I assume you're finding is that there are many people that experience uh, PTS or TBI and have never even been in combat. And I'm just curious how many of those folks are entered into your program. Cause I, I was under the mistaken, um, con conclusion that 
you know, a lot of what we experience with this high level of veteran suicide, which depending on what study you're seeing, it's 17 to 22 a day. And I've actually recently learned if you go between the ages of 18 to 34, it's actually increased to about 45 a day, especially mm -hmm. after the, the botched pullout from Afghanistan. Um, but uh, um, what, what, I'm just curious how many of how many folks are you even seeing in the program that because I thought it everything was related to combat injuries or PTS related you know combat related PTS combat related traumatic brain injury and uh, I I I wonder how much you're seeing now of folks who who haven't even been in combat that are are participating and and getting value out of Operation Mend. Uh Operation MEND uh, was never focused solely on combat injuries. It was injuries sustained in the line of duty. Uh -huh. And I recognize, and Operation MEND recognizes that that is a broad statement in the line of duty. When you sign up at the recruiting mm -hmm. office, you are in the line of duty after that. So what this is, is it, it is a, a physical injury associated with that. And that can be domestic deployment, that can be, you know, um, out of the country deployment. Um, what it isn't is normal wear and tear, which our medical directors make that determination. Um, and it, it the, and our psychological injuries, I will add, also can be uh, domestic deployment as well as, as um, and, and actually those folks that have never left post. Yeah, that's fascinating because I, I think another phenomenon we're seeing, especially with the uh, um, increased use of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, um, we have a number of, of folks, I think it's predominantly in the Air Force because that's that those are the ones who pilot these vehicles, could be sitting right here where I'm at and delivering ordnance somewhere in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever. Um, and I think it's a recent phenomenon that, that they're, they're experiencing PTS and they're, they're having suicidal ideation because unlike someone who's physically on the battlefield and, and whether they're physically facing their enemy or not, they're actually deployed to a location. You now have, you have folks that are sitting in air conditioned offices anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world. And it's like playing a video game, except it's for real. I mean, they're delivering ordinance and. And they're, they're, they're now accountable for taking lives. And it seems to be a, another kind of interesting challenge that folks are, are dealing with. Have, are you seeing that as well um, we are. In, in, oh, in the program? Over the years, we have seen um, warriors that, that uh, manned, unmanned um, air vehicles. And they do see, they, they, they don't see the details, but they see enough. And it is as potent oftentimes as if they were right there on the battlefield, especially when there's um, collateral. Um, so, Dana, I'd, I'd like to kind of shift to you. Um, I would love for you to share with our audience what your role is with uh, with Operation Mend and uh, how you became involved with it. And I think it's fascinating that you've been with them for 15 years. That's that's very uncommon in today's uh, environment where someone is with an organization for, for that long. But uh, I, I'd love for you to share share your involvement with the program uh, with our audience. Well, I um, I I could talk about Operation Mend all day, Howie. This is a this is a no brainer for me because it's 
my labor of love um and you know uh, my my life's passion project i guess like i not i mean i i love what i do every day so um i'm really fortunate because my my in-laws started the program back in 2007 wow. so it's a family it's mm -hmm. a it's a family love and uh it was you know 2005 when the war was really peaking my father-in-law and mother-in-law said we you know here we are sitting in los angeles we could pretend like nothing's happening but everything's happening we've got to do something about this we've got to do something that's meaningful and um we started to look into what we could and should do we went down to brook army looked at the fisher house projects um made a gift down there to fisher house toured uh brook army uh saw some things that you can never unsee um with a lot of burn patients in the hospital and um we also saw that strength and resilience that joe talked about and we we talked to a lot of warriors and their caregivers who were there and um we went home with that uh that in our heads and hearts and um tried to figure out what to do next. And my mother-in-law was inspired by an interview that Lou Dobbs had with a young Marine who had uh, been in a in an explosion in a, in a Humvee and had most of his face burned uh, uh, off his nose, his ears, his mouth. And, and he said to Lou Dobbs, well, now that I'm up and around, they got to fix the beautiful part. And my mother-in-law said, to my father-in-law, Ronnie, you know, we got to do something about this. Uh, cause my in-laws were, were really involved at UCLA. My father-in-law was on the board of the hospital there. And he said, we're, we're sitting here in the heart of UCLA with all these plastic surgeons and these specialists and, um, wow. neurovascular and vascular surgeons. And maybe we can bring that expertise to the military. And sure enough, they took the leadership of UCLA health down to Brook army and, got all the leadership in a room together and said, how can we make this work? And um, through his persistence and perseverance and and uh, some funding, they got off the ground in September 2007 and brought the first patient to UCLA um, to try to restore his face, which they did. And they did you know, amazing work over a period of many years. But that's what started the flow of patients. And the way I, I mean, we we were doing it as a family, but the way I got so involved is in response to the army's objections that it would be too difficult to bring warriors and their families to Los Angeles, you know, out of out of the military environment, into the civilian environment. And Los Angeles is too big, it's gonna to be too difficult uh, for them to navigate. And, and they just didn't trust that we would really take care of them. And and my husband and I said, you know what, we're going to wrap our arms around them. We are going to, to provide a program where we will um, assign a buddy family to each patient who comes to Los Angeles who will be their social support when they're here. They will treat them like they're their relatives who are coming in from out of town that they like and they want to be with and want to spend time with. And, and, um, and we're going to take care of them. And we made that promise. We also promised the military that UCLA would pick them up at the airport when they got there. We would bring them to UCLA. We, we would provide their housing for them. And um, and it would be all funded by donor donors uh, wow. 
and and uh and so we we that's what we did and so ever since then i've been running the buddy program and i have someone who helps me do that i can't do that by myself and we continue to match all of our patients with wonderful families in los angeles who've got the whole community engaged um in in making great matches we we do it very carefully and our patients feel like they're really taken care of when they come to us they're our warriors i we don't usually call them patients because they're they're you know they're our they're our family but um that's how i got involved so I, i'm still doing that today and i i love my buddy program um we've got about i don't know 350 buddies in los angeles or buddy families that that support our warriors um we're really excited because in December, we launched a substance use disorder track in our post-traumatic stress intensive treatment program. And so we've got a sober buddy program also. Uh, that's awesome. Um, and so, you know, we we try to support our patients in exactly the way they need to be supported socially. You know, I'm going to say here, too, that first off, this is an amazing program. Um, and I love that, that it exists. And I think it's also a shining beacon to more of what we need in society, uh, where there are forces pulling us apart uh, when we clearly all want to be together, right? It, it, that that's kind of the overarching thing that I see, um, and that you know, I, I, I say this on every episode: the military is the greatest team on the planet, and we do not support them enough as a society. Uh, so, if I can throw in a quick question, and this is something I wish we did more of. Um, with the two of you, right? When I'm around military and I look to the military for guidance, I look to the military to be inspired. Um, and naturally I'm surrounded by people from the military all the time. Uh, I found that has only enriched my life. And, and my hope is that that goes both ways, right? But I think that when you are around military members, specifically those that have been, been harmed in the line of duty, as you said, or affected by the line of duty, um, that that's life changing. It, it changes how you wake up. It changes when you're having a bad day, that perspective, right? So could you comment on the impact? And, and again, so it's almost an unfair question to ask. Could you comment on the impact this has had on your lives just in terms of enriching your day? Uh, but, you know, it's not an unfair question to yeah. ask just because you know, the answer well, I, I meant like the answer is almost too vast, right? Like the, how, how could we portray that in words? But, right. but you know, I, mean, I, I, yeah, go ahead. It's kind of, I mean, I think it's kind of transformed this, the portion of our community that has engaged with us in the program. Right. Uh, That's awesome. Wow. Right. Because I would say yeah. that at the beginning, when we started it, I think our service members really felt like people in Los Angeles did not care about our service members. And their family they they thought we were out here it's hollywood you yeah know, and I'm like, i could see why they would think that too and if it's not a shot at la it's just that's i could see that right and and yeah. i think that um you know i know you're asking about the impact on our community sure but i think you know at the get-go we didn't understand what the enormity of the impact on our community would be right um but we knew right away that our service members were surprised that people wanted to support them so much and not for their not be not for their own interests this is you know our buddies they do this with no agenda and right. that's we talk to them about it up front especially 
Yeah. Imagine that people do care about each other. It turns out they really care about each other. Like we say to our buddies, you know, if patients in our intensive treatment program for for PTSD and they want to try to go to a basketball game because they want to try to get out there. They want to try to do something they used to love to do. Right. Right. So we say to a buddy here, here are tickets to a basketball game. Give it a shot. Go. And if the warrior gets to the game and lasts at the game for 10 minutes and says, it's, I did it, but right. it's too much. They turn around, and they walk out the door and that's great. That yeah. was great. It was great. The buddy, the buddy doesn't, it doesn't matter to the buddy one way or the other. They're just there to support the warrior. Right. So for, I think for our buddies, that experience of just being there to, support somebody who's who's done so much for them and who has struggled so much and suffered and to be able to let them have that experience without any judgment right totally totally you know and to really try to understand what that sacrifice has been for that warrior what that change in their life has meant really what every day in their life how it has impacted their family impacted them and how that what even the littlest things they can do, how that makes them feel, how it makes that warrior feel like, oh, wow, I really feel cared for. And they go home, no, the warrior goes home and our buddies stay in touch with them. You know, that's what our hope is because they really care. They want to be in touch with them. We have one buddy who um, has a warrior who lives not that far away. And we keep hearing about them meeting up to go for hikes because they both love hiking. Right. We have buddies who've seen each other on vacation. They'll stop in, you know, on the East coast when they're there and they grab, uh, grab a meal together, or grab an overnight together. I mean, we're building relationships across cultures that are totally different. Right. And I, and- I will add on that ages, the impact that the buddy children yeah have had on their interactions with warriors that is life-changing they have a perspective now that they never got the opportunity to have and wouldn't without the buddy program it is so meaningful for our kids the kids of our our buddies and um we had several years ago um high school buddies and so that there were high school students Right. So we would meet with the, the high school students and, and talk to them about the impact of physical injuries as well mm. as psychological injuries and how they can make a difference with our warriors. Um, and it it's, you know, it's phenomenal. You should s- see it on their job applications, on their school applications, what it's meant to them. I, I'll tell you both a quick story about how impactful this can be, because I had a moment like that. In high school, my my parents were both born in the Silent Generation. They were raised by the War Generation, mm-hmm. um, and my father, who who idolized World War II GIs, just said, "If you ever meet a vet, not just World War II, just a vet, just shake their hand, just say thanks." Right. Um, so I was in high school. I was in eleventh grade, and uh, we're all familiar with Band of Brothers, the the the, the you yeah. know, series that that uh, true story obviously that they did on hbo and several of the members of the band of brothers lived in philadelphia so they came to my high school when i was 17 mm-hmm. years old um how i'm not sure if i've ever told you the story this, uh, no, this no. really changed my I've life he- i've heard i thought i heard all your stories that no, I probably, man. we don't have that much time um <laughs> i'll tell you so so they were sitting in my history class talking to us about you know world war ii 
Um, and I'll never forget this. I went up to them uh, afterwards, just kind of out of obligation. My father had told me to do this. That's why I was doing it. Um, it would also be the last time I did it out of just someone telling me to do it. Because after this, I do it because I understand to a point now. But I went up to, I believe it was uh, Garnier was his name. He's in the, he's oh, buried. Oh, wow. No yeah. kidding. Uh, he had both his legs taken in the war. And I shook his hand. And I'll never forget this. He he grabbed my hand really tight and he pulled me in. And he looked me dead in the eye and said, don't ever forget what we did. <sighs> and and he, and it was chilling. It was impactful. Uh, and and it was a it was a little bit uh, of fear in his eyes mm -hmm. of people are forgetting why and what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, now, all the members of that uh, band of brothers have now passed on. All right. But that changed my life that this is a guy that has seen the worst of the worst. And, and he is worried we're going to forget about him. And that was the day that my trajectory changed from this being something my father told me to do, which I was always thankful to. Uh, I'm not going to be a bystander for anybody that ever served. And now, fast forward, this is, this is why this was important to me. Uh, my generation has just fought in wars since September 11, 2001. Right. Uh, I am married to, to my wife who served in the Air Force. Uh, and I know a lot of people my age now that I mean, we're all, you know, early millennials, I say, that are approaching or after 40. And uh, now I'm seeing them deal with incredible PTS, mental illness. Uh, and, and as you both said, it, this, this is the, I know people that have been literally blown up and survived and people that have never been deployed and have had major problems. And then this is after a pandemic, right? So I just bring this up because for anybody listening, military or not, um, and Dana, you're bringing this up. You have no idea how, healing on both sides of the spectrum, just knowing somebody or helping somebody can be. And also to, to, to make this point even more impactful, you brought up the basketball game. I love that quote about if you're in darkness, can you see your next step? Just take the next step and don't ever be judgmental of someone's next step. I, I, I know a young lady who had so much anxiety, she couldn't cross a busy road and, and, you know, she eventually did. And I was so excited for her. And she, I remember she goes, this is so lame. I, I couldn't cross the street. I said, I don't care what the issue was. Like, I don't care about the, the surrounding issue. You did it. So if it's right. a basketball game for 10 minutes, you did it. But that's uh, what we tell yeah. our, we try to help our buddies understand, but I'll tell you something really disappointingly that we've had happen. Cause I've had some, you know, most of our buddies are civilians. Almost all of them are civilians. And now and then we have uh service members or well, not rarely active duty, but sometimes we have people who are in maybe in the reserves or in the guard who sure. come in, but mostly we're civilians, but we've had some, some veterans come through um, who have not been great buddies hmm. because they have not been respectful of our service members who have PTS, who did not see combat. Wow. Um, She's and, kidding that they, oh, they were got, judged. Yeah. They were wow. out. But, uh, and then we had, you know, we had uh, some others who didn't have the patience for it. And no. it shocked me to my core. Yeah, missing the point there, right? understand. Right. Yes. There was just a, hand, uh, there were a handful of them, but a handful is way too many, way too many not right. to have knowledge of what it means. Like, because I had one buddy who, who took a warrior to a hockey game and, didn't get it 
And mm. I didn't think that was the warrior I needed, the, the buddy I needed to explain it to. That's interesting. That, you know, <laughs> it, 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 what kills me about this is that, look, I have a friend who was in the army and he unfortunately dropped the refrigerator basically on his knee right before deployment and, oh. and uh, severely injured himself to the point he could never go. And his, his whole group got taken out. He had he still has massive PTS because of this. Sure. Right. You do not have to go to the the, the battlefield. Well, he's probably got survivor skills. Like, he's he's got know. all of it. And, and and my point is is and this is going back to the judgmental thing, right? It you could serve for a year and it could dramatically change your mind, right? Uh, you know, like, like my wife, my wife is a physician. Here's one people, no one's thinking about right now. And, and speaking to you two, my wife is a physician. She just went through a massive pandemic as a doctor nurses, anybody in the medical field, this isn't just limited to doctors. All right. Um, look, she's dealing with something. All right. She, she saw things she didn't think she'd see. And, and she right. was in the military. Right. Right. And, and by the way, we all have gone through something, all of us, uh, you know, here's one I haven't, <laughs> I've never said this publicly. Um, September 11th, 2020, just a couple of years ago. All right. And, and September 11th obviously impacted all of us, but I mean, that was a major moment. I was 18. I started crying in my room when, when for no reason I couldn't. And I remember <laughs> thinking, wow, it's been, it's been uh, 20 years or 19 years. And here I am just today. This is the first time I've ever cried over nine 11 uh, as an adult. And I remember my wife telling me like, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like you're, you're probably stressed out, but it just goes to show you like, even, you know, I, I consider myself to be somewhat, mentally fit, right? Even in, in, you never know how this is going to manifest itself is my point. And I have no problem making myself vulnerable. So I was bawling my eyes out in my room over, over this event, right? None of us are impervious to this. So to not have a, an understanding of that or to be curious instead of judgmental, I mean, it's shocking to me at times, but that's something we need to work on as a society. And I also think we need to work on it with our warriors, right? Because that stigma and that um, fear of addressing their post-traumatic stress is truly has been since the beginning of time. We right. have it actually recorded since Napoleon. But what has, has not changed over the decades when we've had a um, war is that it takes about 10 to 12 years post-trauma for our warriors to start addressing their post-traumatic stress. Wow. Wow. And we saw that in Vietnam and we, we didn't think we would see that here um, with our post 9-11 warriors, but it, it definitely is that same time frame. but it's that 10 to 12 years where there's multiple divorces, substance use. I mean, post-traumatic stress is an interpersonal injury. It is an injury right. that impacts us neurologically and it impacts us physically. So getting our warriors to address it sooner, I think is a goal we all need to have and, and removing the stigma. Right. And, and I think Lee, what you said about just, you know, 9-11, 2020, just that grief slams you. It did. It really did out of nowhere. And I thought I had dealt with it. Many times, you know, it just, it just goes to show you that, you know, and, and again, I, I wasn't judgmental of myself. I was, I was curious of like, oh, wow, I, I am amazed that, yeah. that that affected me. 
Um, and I, I look again, it's a lot of things. I'm seeing the world as an adult, not as an 18 year old. I mean, I, that I have children. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of things that change in your perspective of the moment, but, um, I got to reiterate what you just said about that 10 to 12 years. I have not heard that before. And that's incredibly impactful. Um, and also Howie, that's very congruent with what we've heard on the show, uh, over the episodes. Yeah. So, so, um, so listen, I, I've been taking pretty copious notes here and I got about six things I, I, I want to either talk about or, or ask questions about. First of all, um, and this is more, uh, not so much for, for, for Dana and, and Dr. Joe, but more for our audience uh, that you may or may not realize. I mean, less than 5% of the U.S. population has ever served in the military. So most people have no clue None. what is involved in military service and what folks have gone through. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, Dana, you talked about the, which, which is not surprising to me at all, the resistance or maybe it was Dr. Joe, I don't remember, but the resistance that you got from the army about supporting Operation Mend. I mean, that, that, that may sound very surprising to some. It's absolutely not surprising to me at all um, because I see a very similar stance from, from the Department of the Army and from the, from the DOD on just this whole dealing with suicide prevention. You would like to think, and it's it's really frustrating for me, but you would like to think that, you know, this statistic that we constantly throw around, depending on what, what survey or research paper you read about losing 17 to 22 uh, veterans a day, you would think that that would be a, a motivator to do something. And, and, and uh, to be very candid, what there is now some some very interesting and and I think some very um, potentially successful programs are underway. I'm involved in one of them that I think is going to address lowering the high rate of veteran suicide. The the frustrating thing is it's not being done to lower the high rate of suicide. It's because when when we lose folks to suicide or lose them to, to or they have problematic transitions, which oh by the way is the number one cause for veteran suicide are problematic transitions going from the military to some, whatever your life is going to be after the military, uh, after you leave the military, it costs the military a budget to take care of that. So what's motivating the mil, uh, the DOD and specifically the department of the army is how do they salvage budget because it's taken away from their budget to care for these folks, right? That and and listen, whatever it is, at least now there's some positive action being taken. And what I would specifically want to talk about is the Army ETS sponsorship program, because Dana, what you're describing to in in the uh, with Operation Men and the Buddy program sounds so similar to the concept of the Army ETS sponsorship program. Uh, you know, having served for 27 plus years in the military, I, I was fortunate enough to be in many units. Where when we when we had an inbound soldier, sailor, airman, marine to 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 the organization I was a part of, we typically assigned a sponsor to that that in, inbound uh, uh, active duty service member to help integrate them into the unit, right? And so whether it's a six months to a year out, you establish contact, and then you you under, you you kind of establish a trusted relationship with them and understand what their needs and requirements are. And then the sponsor tries to meet those needs and requirements. And, and then when they physically, when that person physically arrives, you're literally taking them by the hand and taking them through the in-processing process 
to include their family members, right? And so, um, and that's exactly the concept the Army ETS sponsorship program is taking is when someone exits the military is do a, a pretty significant intake once they enter into the program so you know when they're getting out of the military and where they're going to and then assign us if the if the the transitioning service member elects to have a sponsor assigned is go to the community where that where that person is going to now move to and and assign a sponsor from that community and integrate them into that community um, and it's, so it, it, it's, for, it's the same concept that you're describing with the buddy program. I think that's absolutely fascinating that you have a program like that. And, and I love the fact, interestingly enough, that it's happening in Los Angeles because I never in a million years would have expected that a community like Los Angeles would, would do that. Um, and it's, it that actually warms my heart to know that, uh, that it's, it's, it's being, um, supported in the way it's being supported. So the first question I have for you is, how does someone become a buddy? And and you need more buddies. And and how are they trained and certified? Well, first of all, I you know fi finding buddies is uh, it's a it's a, how do I describe it? I mean, it, it's an organic process. And right now, what we really need are more warriors because. I can find buddies. I find buddies. It's, it's, it's so interesting how, how I do find them usually through my friends and my friends, friends and my friends, 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 you know, I'll, the funny stories. I, I, cause I know we like stories. We, you know, we had a, a warrior coming in who is all about rodeo. You know, he loves rodeo. And I was talking to one of my buddies who was supporting another warrior and I said, God, I got this warrior coming in and he's like a rodeo guy. And I, how am I going to find a rodeo guy here in LA? And he goes, oh my God, don't you know the cowboy of Beverly Hills? And I said, the cowboy of Beverly Hills? I, I, I don't even believe there's such a thing. He goes, no, there's this guy, he's a hedge fund guy, but he does rodeo like at nights on the weekend. I said, that's impossible. He says, yeah, no, you got to meet him. Like my wife plays Mahjong with his wife. Bosh, I haven't heard that in years. <laughs> so, so, that's, so this is how this is how I find the right buddies for our warriors. Is, you know, I look at what our warriors' interests are, and I I see that thing. Me and my my partner in this player, and we go, "Ooh, who do we know who really loves whatever that warrior is or used to be interested in?" Taxidermy. Once I had somebody a warrior come in, but I'm really interested in taxidermy, and I had this oh. other buddy. We used to love to take the the our patients' children to Disneyland, and I said to her, "Gosh, do you know?" Because I knew her husband was a hunter, and I said, "Did you know anyone who who does taxidermy?" She goes, "I happen to know a guy who does taxidermy out in Thousand Oaks." I said, "That's impossible." She goes, "Yeah, no, I know somebody who does that." So we connected them the, that warrior with that taxidermist, and so that's how I find buddies. But what we really need to find who we really need to get to are the warriors who need our care, right? That's who I need help finding, Howie. That we. So, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no that's but that's where we are right now. Is that we've got space in our program for warriors, and we shouldn't. Well, okay. So, um, so where is the? Ch why is that a challenge? It would seem to me there is it just that folks don't know about it. Is like yes. what can we do to help? I I I think 
we still have issues with stigma. I think post COVID is we're, we're still in a problem where people don't want to really leave the house, the house. Um, I think the idea of leaving their home for two weeks or three weeks to come into a program can be daunting right now, post pandemic. Um, and the, and I think people just don't know that we exist. I really think mostly the number one problem is people don't know we exist. Okay, so listen, so I, I will, I, I will do my level best to change that in whatever way I can. I mean, I meet every week with the, uh, the leadership team of the uh, Army ETS sponsorship program. Have you, have you, are you familiar with that program? Have you met or talked to anybody in that program? Uh, we are familiar with the program through one of our um, lia- liaisons at the VA who who works on that program. But other than that, we haven't really okay. worked with them. All right, Joe, so I'll uh, fix, Joe, I, I, know, I will I, fix that. Problem with that that Joe mentioned before, Howie, is that when people are coming right out of the service, they're just not ready. Yeah. They're just not ready yet. They're not ready for another for years following their, right. uh, you know, coming out, they're just not ready for, they don't want to deal with their mental health yet. They just want to get established. They want to get out and figure uh, Joe, I think you should speak to this more than I, I'm not really qualified to speak to this piece. No, and you're absolutely right. You know, uh, the yellow ribbon foundation did some statistics just for themselves. And they really came to the conclusion that it took about 120 days post-discharge to for the warrior to start focusing on something other than I just want to get out. I just want to go home. I just want to be with my family. So I, I think that the first year post-discharge has been challenging. We have had warriors for sure that we've treated uh, both physical and psychological injuries uh, during the first year. But typically it's it's after the first year, two, three, and then, like I said, you know, when when your back's against the wall and your family's ready to walk out the door, then you have that breakthrough and you're you're willing to look. So somewhere in between would be ideal. Um, and I, I will say that I think just when when you all are spreading the word, we're a national program over 80% of our warriors come from outside the state of California. We don't have a lot of folks coming from our own backyard. So it's important for, for folks who are in those rural areas and in those major cities to know that we pay for their travel and accommodations and their treatment. Uh, Dr. Joe, I think it's really important at this point. We, we also state uh, what is an ideal warrior for the program, uh, for the people listening, what, what are the, uh, you know, aspects of someone that you're looking for, right? They, they could be looking for you. You know, it's a great question. And one that is, uh, that, that has a simple answer. If, if you have an injury, physical or psychological, that was sustained in the military <clears throat> in your post 9-11, we will work with you to determine eligibility. And where there's a, a line with eligibility is for a physical injury is that, it is a um, specialty care, medical specialty care. So if you have an injury that has been treated and it is, it seems like you're, you're at a dead end with that, then our medical directors are going to evaluate that to see if there's anything we can do. Right. Um, 
And there might not be. Sometimes, you know, military medicine is a phenomenal beast and they take care of a lot. Folks have gone to the VA where they've had great care there. So it may be that we can't do anything, but we'll take a look. Right. For psychological injury, the same. You know, we we could read your medical record and you can have multiple diagnoses, but we're going to do that ourselves. We want to know where you're at today, whether right. you, well, you have, you have to. Yeah, absolutely. So even though, and because the doctor, what I'll tell you, and I apologize for interrupting, but you're, you're kind of hitting a hot button for me. Look, many people won't have it in their medical records. And, right. and I'm a perfect, I'm a perfect example of that. Right. So, um, and I apologize, uh, you know, for, 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 you know, want to maybe tell my story a little bit, but, um, the bottom line is I dealt with depressive tendencies for the better part of my, of my military career. And there's no freaking way I was going to talk, get, get medical help because number one, I was an officer. Number two, I was in mostly, I was in leadership positions. Um, number three, I carried a, a top secret, specially compartmented information clearance. And so there's no freaking way I'm going to ask for help and seek help when I thought that could put my clearance at risk. And I wouldn't have had any of access to the assignments I had. So the bottom line is you could look at my medical record and there's nothing in my medical record when I'm in the military that even hints to the fact that I was dealing with any challenges. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that's probably true for most people, um, whether they've been in combat or not, right? Because you, you talked about it earlier, the stigma. There absolutely is a stigma and it exists today. I, we're trying to break it down now, but um, but it, it's, it's a huge, huge problem because it's seen as a sign of weakness, right? Someone who seeks mental health, um, uh, assistance, it's a, it's viewed as a sign by the person himself or herself yeah. and by the chain of command, it's viewed as a sign of weakness. Now, I think that's starting to change a little bit but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. So the bottom line is you can review medical records all you want. Most people, it ain't going to be in their medical records, you know? Well, and, and, and you make such a great point because one, that's not a barrier for us. And two, when <clears> our <throat> warriors come, they, they haven't wanted to tell their story someplace else. Here is neutral territory, if you will. We're not right. making that judgment. We're right. not part of the military. We're not part of the VA. So if you tell me you have suicidal ideation and it's something that we can talk about immediately, I am not going to send you to an inpatient facility. We're going to talk about it. Right. I'm going to understand more. Where is that coming from? Where is your trauma coming from? What are those details? And it doesn't have to be um, every single granular detail, but it's enough for us to assess where are your gaps in care? What have they been? And how can we at Operation Mend address those? Yeah, so let me share another uh, fascinating statistic. And the reason I asked about Dr. Joe Girasi earlier is he's he's been my initial point of contact. He runs a, uh, a task force for the Department of Veteran Affairs that, that studies um, suicide prevention. More importantly, he doesn't just study it with his team of clinical psychologists. And he, by the way, is a retired... Uh, infantry lieutenant colonel who spent quite a bit of his time in uh, in the special operations arena, but he is a he he has a doctoral degree in clinical clinical psychology as well. 
but the point here is that that Joe studies um, and collects data and his team collect data and does research on suicide prevention to drive action. And that's to me is the is the real discriminator. I, I am so sick and tired of millions of dollars being spent in studying suicide prevention and no freaking action being taken. And what attracted me to Joe Girasi was that um, everything he's doing, everything his team is doing is to drive action. And, uh, and that's what led me to the Army ETS sponsorship program. So a, a fascinating statistic that Joe shared with me is that um, the, the VA has actually labeled that first 12 months when you get out of the military, when a veteran exits the military, as the deadly gap. Mm-hmm. The likelihood of a veteran committing suicide increases two to three times in that first 12 months when they get out of the military. So the ETS sponsorship program, the whole, the whole mandate behind the program is to help a veteran and his or her family navigate that first 12 months because mm-hmm. that's when they're most susceptible to doing something, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, if, and, and statistically, we're finding that if we can help them navigate successfully that 12-month period in most cases and get their feet underneath them, that they can continue on and have a, a reasonable chance at success in the rest of the life. Um, and, and what's fascinating to me is, this t- is what you shared about um, it, this problem presenting itself 10 to 12 years after exit mm-hmm. from the military. So I think I'm, I'm reflecting back on my own, my own service, right? So I've had these challenges throughout the majority of my, of my uh, active duty. And I'm, I'm now realizing that the rate, reason I was able to handle it maybe as effectively as I did was because um, I, I was so focused on my mission. I was so focused focused on taking care of my people. I was so focused on being the best that I could be and then developing others around me that I just, I just was able to power through it, right? And hide it. I literally hid it. Nobody knew that I had these challenges. Hell, my family didn't even know I had these challenges, right? Once I left the military, and I no longer had that same kind of mission focus and people focus, what I started to experience was I became, I, I started suffering more from it because I wasn't fighting it. I wasn't able to combat it the way I did when I was on active duty. And, and the further away I got from my, from my military service, the more I succumbed to it. And I've been riding a freaking roller coaster for years now and driving my family absolutely crazy with really high highs and really low lows. And I think I'm at a point now where I'm managing it much more effectively. I'm sure I can still use a a number of other tools and techniques, but what you just said about 10 to 12 years, it really resonated with me because that's exactly what I'm experiencing right now. And yet you don't come for help. Well, I mean, I'm doing, I'm do- so here's what's happened. Here's what's changed for me, Dana, that um, it didn't happen in the military. I talk about it all the time now. I wasn't willing to talk about it to anyone. Right. All right. Now, it still upsets some of my family members that I do that, but I really don't give a shit because I don't really care about what they think. I care about how I feel. And right. I find that the more I talk about it and the more I confront it, and the more I deal with it, and the more I'm honest and transparent with myself and other people around me, then I'm dealing with it much more effectively. So if, if someone has a problem with that, excuse my language, but fuck them. I don't really care. You know, what I care about is my mental health, 
my mental fitness and the things that I have to do to better manage that. Right. Um, and so, so that's something that's different that I didn't do before. Cause I, I internalized everything. I kept everything bottled up inside. And then what was starting to happen was I started having emotional blowups that like out of freaking nowhere, you know, and everybody, and everybody's wondering where the hell is that coming from? Cause that's so counter to my personality. And, and now I realized was I, I was just, you know, I was like a volcano erupting, man. The pressure and the stress had built up to the point where I had to let it go, you know, or what was happening more likely was it wasn't so much emotional blowups. It would be, I would just seclude myself. I would isolate myself. I would sit on my couch watching TV for 15 hours a freaking day. And I'm a very active person. I, I pride myself with keeping a certain level of, of, of physical fitness. And I wasn't doing shit. I was watching TV all day, um, right. and which is very much, you know, that's the way I was dealing with it. And I would isolate myself. So it's not so much that I was, yeah, it's not so much I was lashing out against anybody. It was that I would just completely isolate myself from the rest of the world. Very typical, you know? very typical. I just want to make sure that the folks in the audience are, clear about when I said 10 to 12. It isn't that in 10 to 12 years, it shows itself. I mean, the, the military teaches you all to compartmentalize and you're exquisite at it. Right. You're trained to do that. So what right. you're describing, Howie, is that those coping strategies coupled with compartmentalizing worked until it didn't. And the cost exactly. of, of all of those different types of coping strategies uh, they're they're temporary, so it it takes about ten to twelve years for many people to exhaust their coping strategies, whether they're positive coping strategies, healthy or unhealthy. And <clears throat> a lot of times, it's the family, as you experienced, that says, "Whoa, you know, this isn't working for you, and it's really not working for us." Right. Well, and, 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 that, and you're exactly right. Cause it didn't take 10 to 12 years. I mean, right. I was suffering way before it, but it, 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 the bottom line is it so resonates with me because I've had personally experienced what you just described and I'm still, still wrestle with it, but I think I'm, and listen, there, there are many more things that I'm sure I can do differently or better, but I know that I'm handling it a little bit better now. And the, I think the biggest reason is because I'm willing to confront it and talk about it and, and just not let it, let it build up like I used to let it build up before. You know, you know? I'll say right. this too. Go ahead. Doug. I was just to say, but you ahead. still sound like you'd be resistant to going into it. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, Lee will tell you, I, I we I came across a, um, a a guy I had served with years, or not actually served with him, but I actually he was uh, I, I actually recruited him to come to one of the organizations I was a part of, who who was who was literally planning to execute uh, to 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 take his life behind his desk mm. in uh, the Joint Special Operations Command as a, as a he was a full bird colonel, was promotable to general. And, uh, and went through a very challenging um, investigation that, that took him off the, the promotion list. And the way he chose to deal with it was to take his life. Um, and thankfully, he didn't because on the compound at the Joint Special Operations Command as part of the uh, Preservation of the Force and Family uh, program. It's a, a very extensive um, program uh, 
for in the special options community, there are clinical psychologists on the compound. So thankfully, instead of actually executing his plan, um, he went and saw one of these clinical psychologists, right? Well, and I learned of, of what he went through and I knew him personally. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that he was so transparent about, about it and sharing his story, hopefully to prevent other people from going through what he went through. But then we actually, so we not only interviewed him on an episode, but we actually interviewed the clinical psychologist mm -hmm. that, that, that helped him. And, uh, um, uh, and we had her on the show and I found myself, I, it was like a therapy session for me. It was, yeah. you know, wow. I, I mean, I, I can remember so vividly when we were done with that episode and, and, and I signed off, I just felt like a freaking um, hundred pound rucksack had been taken off my shoulders. And I felt so relieved and I felt so much different than I did any time before that. So Dana, I'm ab absolutely open to seeing and, get and, and getting help because I know I need it. And more importantly, I want to be an example for others that, hey, don't suffer the way I suffered and so many others are suffering. You know, be honest and open and candid and transparent and vulnerable with yourself and others because that's what's going to help lead you to, to getting healthy again, you know? You know, I'll, I'll say here too that we've gone over a lot of things today. The, the first step to addressing any issue is to know that there is one, right? To be conscious of something's not right. Um, that can be very hard, especially when there's a stigma surrounding whatever that issue may be. Uh, issue might not even be the right word, right? Just something you're, you're a challenge in your life. First step is to understand that it's there. Then what? Well, this goes back to what we talked about earlier about <clears throat> you just got to find the first step. Uh, I think a lot of people say, okay, there's an issue, but I can't talk about it. Right? Not, well, there, th that's the stigma that we're breaking, you know, all of us here today, right? Or at least trying to break, right, Lee? We're, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. I, I, we're trying and doing it. It's, we've got a lot of ways to go, but we're doing it. And, and Dana, you just pointed that out too. Like there's, there's a stigma. And, um, you know, Howie, to your credit, I remember, I remember watching you kind of be aware of some of these things and then taking really massive action very quickly to make major changes in your life. Um, and a lot of it was just, I think you saying, you know what? I do have an issue with X, Y, and Z. Uh, which you just said you hadn't, you didn't, you never talked about for your whole, not even just career, your whole life, right? Um, so look, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Uh, like I want everybody listening to understand that, that this is not easy. But if you're in that position, or you think you're in that position, there's two people here right now that want to help you. So I think before we even go any further, I just, you know, what is, what is the streamlined way to get in contact with you two? If someone listening right now is saying, you know what, I think I need to talk to someone. So um, certainly going on our website uh, and calling, you know, the phone number's on there, calling our office and um, our intake coordinators will definitely call you back. And what, what is the website real quick? It's at uclahealth.org backslash operation mend m-e-n-d if, if you're listening to this first off whether you remember that or not you can go on google and do this too right if you're oh, listening yeah. to this and you feel like this is something you need pause this episode right now and do it don't wait don't allow yourself to build the thoughts up of oh, i can't i can't do it right now all right you're not alone number one you're not alone these two people have told us wonderfully that there are people in the program one of the biggest mis misconceptions is you're alone. You're not alone. 
Okay. There are people that, that have been through it. I know that that's not what your brain may be saying right now, but believe me, that's one of the reasons we created this show. All right. Take the action now, pause the episode and do it if you need to do it. All right. And if you're not quite ready yet, understand, but, but find that path, right? You're not alone. I think that's a super important to say, uh, you know, take the first well, Lee, step. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it yeah. one step further, right? Um, because po- folks who are actually going through it may or may not be willing to take that step um, sure. for a number of reasons, right? Um, again, I talked about it. There's a, it's, it's perceived as a sign of weakness. It's actually just the opposite. It's strength. actually a sign of strength Absolutely. to ask for help. But, but here's the message I want to send. If you are around people who you know are struggling, if right. you're around people who you know <clears throat> are having a tough time, and for whatever reason, and this is not judgmental, for whatever reason, aren't doing enough about it to deal with it, then it is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to do something about it. Because well, I can't tell you how many times when I was on active duty, and God forbid if we lost someone, um, there were so many red flags as we investigated and inquired into the situation. There were so many red flags that presented themselves. And either it was someone saw something and didn't know what they were seeing, or they saw something and were afraid to do something, or saw something and ignored it. Well, what I'm telling you is if you see someone who's struggling, then help them. Let them know that you are there to support them. And if they're not willing to do anything, um, especially if they have suicidal ideations, especially if they're doing, if, if they are self-medicating with alcohol, if they are self-medicating with drugs, if, if they're around guns, um, you, I believe you have a responsibility then if they're not willing to help themselves, then you get off your ass and you help them right. and you contact Operation <clears throat> Mend or some other medical facility and let, let the medical professionals deal with the situation because you literally, you literally could save someone's life. Can right? I just so, interject? Yeah, think, and please, please do. This, yeah. is, this is really important. First of all, um, I, I just want to say that those who don't know, there's a new veteran crisis line. Mm-hmm. Um, the number is 988. It's a new right. national line, right, Joe? 988, press one. And then and then hit one. Hit one. That's the new veteran crisis line because we're not actually a crisis line. So we, you know, we are not a crisis program. So if you know somebody who is suicidal, like we're not, we're not a crisis line. So I just want people to cool. know that. So um, that's, that's a great new resource for everybody because it's easier to remember than than the other uh, crisis line. So nine eight eight, you can and I think you can, um, yeah. And then you just hit one. So that's brand new. It's like four one one when you pick up the phone nine eight eight and then hit one. And, and that's the, other, the veteran crisis line. Veteran mm-hmm. crisis line. Veteran crisis line. Um, and then the other thing is that for caregivers who are out there with veterans who are suffering can the caregiver, you know, we, we are the only program in the nation that treats caregivers as 100% participants in our intensive treatment programs for PTSD and TBI. Um, I don't know uh, why we're the only ones who do that, but we are. Um, But, you know, as we said at the beginning, we're, we've always been family centered. And so um, we, we really, really care about, our caregivers. So also if you're a caregiver and you want to inquire about coming about coming to treatment with your veteran, um, you can call and get information about that as well. So 
we just, I yeah, just Dan, to... I'm really glad you brought that up because I actually had that as the note and somehow I, I, I skipped over it. That is, that is a really, really critical thing for me because, look, as much as I care and I do care about helping <clears throat> veterans deal with this, um, the, the, the stress that, that these kinds of situations put on military spouses and their, and their family members is, it, it, I think it's, it is not completely understood. It's not being addressed. And, um, and it really concerns me. In fact, I've been beating this drum with the Army ETS uh, uh, sponsorship leadership and with Joe Girasi is um, I love the fact that we're talking about how to stem the, the high and, and reverse the high rate of veteran suicide. What are we doing about military spouses? Mm -hmm. What are mm -hmm. we doing about family members? Because the suffering that they're going through is equal to, if not even worse, in some some cases, I think, than what the veteran is going through. I know what I put my own family through, um, and it and it wasn't fair to them. And so the fact that you have a program that is open to and willing to to help um, spouses and 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 children, I think, is absolutely phenomenal. I think that's incredible. I think one of the the things that gets lost is that with our post nine eleven warriors. You know, you become a caregiver overnight, very different than if you have a child with special needs or if you have an aging parent, that happens over time. But when you have a, a, a warrior that is injured, either psychologically or, or physically, you become a, a, a caregiver overnight. And there's no handbook on how to do that. Right. And, and part of what our program provides is that the caregiver has an opportunity to see how that has impacted their life and where their paths were interrupted. So it's an opportunity for them to learn skills themselves, but also explore what paths did they not get to take. And I will also say that a lot of times what caregivers do, because they are, you know, ex exquisite multitaskers, that they take over quite a bit where they don't necessarily need to. So we rebalance that dynamic. Give the warrior permission to do the day-to-day -day because they can. You don't get untrained from being in the military. You might It might go dormant, but you don't get untrained. So they, they learn that they can take care of themselves and they can do those things in spite of those injuries. And then the caregiver also uh, gives permission to let that happen and start exploring those things for themselves. It's an amazing yeah, thing to explore. That's so powerful. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, I'm sorry, Lily, go ahead, please. No, I was just, I, I'm just saying the human, the human psyche amazes me that we want, <laughs> you know, I, I talked earlier about wanting to be together. You know, we also don't want, the people we care about to experience pain in any form to the point sometimes we create more pain. You right. know, and that, I mean, that's parenting 101, right? Basically. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, right. so uh, again, to be aware of it, the aware that you're doing it. Um, you know, I, I certainly like my wife and I were in for about a decade. Um, and I, I remember being surprised she was dealing with some of that stuff, you know, and, and, and then I was dealing with some of that stuff. I mean, in, in, in uh, our experience was not uh, severe. You know what I mean? But it, it just goes to show you that it doesn't matter, right? We're not, none of us are impervious to, to our minds and what we can do. And 
how we work together and how we love each other and care for each other. And I'm going to say it again. I love, I love that your organization is based in that. Um, I, 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 one of the coolest things about this episode was to hear not just that it's Los Angeles, but that, Hey, there's people out there that care, right? Like we, we don't share these messages or these programs or these things enough. Right. Uh, and, and we're living in a time period or very unfortunately, um, you know, fear drives our TV, it drives our news, it drives the weather, <laughs> it drives the traffic yeah. report. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, what are we doing? Right. Like the, there's good people out there. There's, we, we do actually care about each other at the end of the day, uh, whether you were in the military or not. So, um, yeah. you know, before I move on to the last uh, question, I'll be honest with you, you know, I, I always give our guests a book title uh, uh, every episode. Sometimes they're very funny. Sometimes they're very serious. But, uh, you know, the obvious book title for both of you is Operation Mend. I know that's the, the title of the organization, but that's a great title for a book. But I'll tell you what, um, you know, Dr. Joe, you said this earlier and you guys have made some amazing points, but that, that 10 to 12 year thing really stood out to me. Um, and I don't, I don't know the exact title, but it's almost like, I don't want to say 10 to 12 years is too long because I don't think that's fair. I think it takes people as long as it takes them. But, but that, that really was impactful to me of, wow, that does sound correct. It takes 10 to 12 years to come, uh, what would you say, come to terms or for, for the, uh, you said before about exhausting all of your kind of compartmentalizing resources, but um, I almost want to clarify that for the audience of that is the typical time it takes for you to get to the point where you're ready to receive help. That's not to cure or to end it. It's you're ready to receive help at 10 to 12 years. I found that that that's mind boggling yeah. to me. That's that's accurate. Yeah. Wow. So for the audience listening, um, and I, and I, I think, and you can tell me if, if I'm wording this wrong, please, but the, the goal is to curtail that. So it doesn't take 10 to 12 years, right? Absolutely. It doesn't have to right. take that long or, right. the, you know, multiple fractured relationships and right. the isolation and distance from your kids. It doesn't. Right. So maybe 10 to 12 years too long is the title, but uh, it's one of those things of, of consciousness. And, and as we said earlier, uh, the, the hardest step is just to know it's happening. Mm-hmm. But once you're conscious of it, things can change very, very quickly. But you have to get to the point of saying, you know, I am experiencing that. Um, and again, how we, how we unabashedly and very uh, uh, unapologetically said today, like, hey, I got to that point. I got to that point. And I had to realize, and, and I'm going to say this again for our audience. I know how we personally, I mean, we're very good friends. I have seen him change dramatically over the last couple of years. I mean, it's, it's, it's inspiring. Right. Um, and I, and I, I have no idea what he's dealing with inside from his time in the service or, or his life, um, or very little idea I should say. Right. So, uh, I just want to applaud you both again on the work that you do. Uh, you know, talk about heroes all the time on the show. You're heroes to me. You inspire me, um, the work you do and, and your buddies and the warriors. All of you inspire me, you know. So, um, final question today is is uh, one we ask a lot on the show. So, Pivotal Moments Media always seeks to strengthen mental fitness worldwide. That is our goal, um, and as we've discussed, everyone struggles with it from time to time. Um, but for you and your staff that you work with daily uh, in the Warriors dealing with trauma, you know, what did you do to manage and strengthen your own mental fitness? Uh, and for the the clinicians of the staff, how do you practice that on a daily basis? You know, I can certainly answer that, and I I tell our warriors this as well. I don't believe I have the right to sit here unless I've sat where they are. Mm -hmm. And so what we also tell them is that it's a process. And I absolutely trust the process. And I think you said it very well, Lee, you know, even though it ends up being 10 to 12 years, they come 
when they need to come. Right. Whatever right. that is and whatever no time frame that is. Right. And I trust that the psyche is an amazing, amazing component. And it has a quest to heal. And it takes a while. <clears throat> right. But what we do at Operation Mend is we make sure that we are addressing some of those barriers. In terms of our staff, we absolutely encourage, we, we can't demand it, but we certainly encourage uh, that they're going on their own journey, their own mental health and mental fitness journey. We provide resources and we have a conversation about it. Right. We don't shy away from it, no matter what it is. If I may, Dana, before we go to you, um, one of the things my wife and I are trying to tackle, and this, I think this speaks to this perfectly is physician burnout. Um, and look, burnout is a mental thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we did is we've identified that one of the problems with burnout is that people are looking for a solution and there is no magic button to press. And this is not just about burnout. What we did find is that conversation, as you just said, is the path right? The pathway out of burnout or the pathway towards, let's just say a a better mindset is to have conversations with other people that have or have not been dealing with what you dealt with. When you talk and express your feelings, that's the path. I love that you said that. Maybe that's the title of the book, right? The path, all right? Because, because again, that's, that's another problem with our our study is well. What? How do I fix this? Well, it, it's not you get a nail and a hammer and you fix it. That is not. That is not how your mind works, right? You have to speak. Well, that's it. That, that's how the male mind works, right? <laughs> Yoga booga. Yeah. No. No. We, and, we, and, we think we can. We think we have a solution to every freaking problem, right? And so, and how, how about this? I, I, I wouldn't. I, I did not serve like you did, but I'm sure that the military kind of has that mindset as well. Of fix it, find a solution, right? Um, and the solution here is not just black and white, or like you said, the ooga booga man ideology, <laughs> you know, but you have to talk, you have to take that step and have a conversation, communicate, come together. Cause it sounds kind of funny, but society is actually the answer, right? Is, is coming together as people and moving forward together. That usually is where the solution lies, but, but the path is the conversation. So I just, sorry, that, that spoke to me. Dana, I definitely want to give you a chance to, to answer this as well. And How do you practice mental fitness daily? I, I apologize. I should ask the question. I mean, I, yeah. I actually have to say, I agree with you in terms of the conversation right. because for myself, you know, this is, these are, t- these are tough times for all of us. I mean, we, we've got so many challenges right now and, you know, for us at Operation Men, these are tough. T- these are these are hard times. Right. You know, having empty seats in our chairs makes it tough for us because, you know, funders don't like that. And for us, we don't like it because we should be serving people who need our help. And so right. that stress that that's such a huge stress for for us that we know there are people who need us, and all we want to do is help. Yeah. And so it's a it's like that catch twenty two for us. And so talking about it. Like for me to be able to talk to you guys and share that with you and say, this is a, a huge relief to me. Like it really helps me to be able to share and say, you know what, we, we've got, we've got seats in our program and there are people who need to be treated and help and, and we need help. Right. And I think it's kind of the same thing as being able to share that, that we need help when we need help is really helpful right. <laughs> to, to make me feel more at peace. And I think with everything, like in my life, when I, you know, sharing and talking and bringing my community in is, is always what helps 
ground me and make me feel calmer. And I also, I, I walk a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> I take two and walks music. a day. And music, M- music helps me too. Yeah, you, you and I are good friends. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, again, just, just to reiterate what both of you are saying, um, and I'll tell kind of a story format. You know, I, I came from a nuclear family. I had my mom, my dad, my brother, and that was basically my my youth. Uh, we have family, but extended family wasn't wasn't vast, right? Mm-hmm. I married my wife, who is Puerto Rican descent. Uh, yeah. And if you go to Puerto Rico, there's literally a street with her last name on it, and everyone mm-hmm. on that street's in her family. Uh, <laughs> vast, vast family. Mm-hmm. And I really learned how her family finds strength through that family community. And mm-hmm. that they really leaned on each other when they needed to. Whereas w- my my family is a little bit more chin up, and and, and not, not that that's bad either, all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I learned another way to to cope with things of well, I can lean on my family a bit more in this environment. Um, and then you said it, community. You know, when I'm down, and again, I'm just very in tune with my feelings uh, at this point in my life. I, I kind of know what I'm feeling, identify what I'm feeling. I try and get to the root of why I'm feeling it. But when I when I need to get out of a rut, I know that hey. Lee, go help someone, anyone, and I'll feel better. That's one of the things that's, that's what you're talking about. That, that's a yeah. form of meditation for me is I will find someone in need and help them and, and how you'll laugh, but typically if they want it or not, uh, but I, I'll, try, <laughs> I'll try and help them. You know what I mean? Uh, but another thing too, is that, and I, I think this is so important for this episode. Look, there's 8 billion people on this planet, give or take a few. And we all have a different point of view. <laughs> so when you're feeling something deep inside, I call it the deepening. You know, like when your heart drops, whatever mm-hmm. that feeling is, you got to You got to get it out. You got to talk. You, you got to know you're not alone. You got to understand that in that moment of despair or whatever you're feeling, that burying it is not always the right option. Okay. If you can find someone to talk to about it, it's amazing. The release you'll feel just talking about it, wow. just talking about it, right? Think about We do this in micro events every day, right? I, I don't get road rage anymore. But, but what do you do when someone cuts you up? That asshole cut me off. You, you got to tell someone about it or you're going to explode, mm-hmm. even though you did. So again, I don't recommend road rage. I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. But um, it comes back to that Robin Williams quote. Robin Williams, who, who I, was a wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, be kind to everyone you meet. You never know if they're going through the worst day of your life. Right. right? Guy cuts me off in traffic now. I just think, I, I don't know what he's going through. Right. My ego is not large enough anymore to, to let him know that, hey, that wasn't okay. He's like, oh, thank God he didn't hit me. Uh, you know, you know what? Honestly, this is the God honest truth. Uh, unless like, like the only time I get mad is if my kids are in the car and someone mm. does something dangerous, then I get a little iffed. But uh, this has happened before. People cut me off and now people hear me say it. I say, hey, God be with you. <laughs> because it's like, I, I just, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't need any negativity. I remember this is the last story. I promise everybody listening. But this will make everybody laugh. I remember I was in New Jersey, uh, Howie's home state, which uh, is is egregious at uh, you know twenty four hours a day. And um, uh, a guy cut me off. He ran a red light in front of me. <laughs> so he, it's a crossing. He ran the red light in front of me, looked me dead in the eye. He's doing the wrong thing and just gives me the bird. Oh my right gosh! My and I remember. This, I remember. I just went like smiling with a thumbs up like this, right? <laughs> And what was funny about that, because I just met this, hey, man, whatever you got to do. This dude got out of his car and started screaming at me. And I just kind of, I was like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to drive. Are you sure he wasn't from Philly? I'm a thousand percent. (laughs) I was in North Jersey. So, so no, we don't go up there that often. But anyway, the the point was, is that 
you know, here's a guy who was, who was clearly going through something. Right. And that, yeah. that's how I look at it. This wasn't about me. Right. I, I didn't want to affect his day that way. Right. Uh, I didn't want to trigger him either, but the point is you never know what someone's going through. We're getting way off course here because I'm telling stories, but uh, those were wonderful answers. And, and I just want to reiterate again, community talking about it, uh, going for walks. I do that every day, twice a day, right? It's a huge distress ride. Listen for the birds. However you choose to practice your mental fitness, there is no right or wrong way. And we always say this, just like a gym, you got to find the machine or the mechanism that works for you. There's no button you push and like, this is how mental fitness is solved. It doesn't work that way. Right. So um, I've done, like I said, 17 minutes of talking after your answer. And I do appreciate you guys listening to that. But you guys are wonderful guests, wonderful information. Uh, we learn every episode, right, Howie? Yeah. And, and listen, uh, uh, just we see such a, uh, a, a trend in, in many of these episodes. And we, we've kind of danced around it a little bit. But we've thrown the word community around and, and mm -hmm. what, what Lee and I are finding in, in medical research, you know, suicide prevention research really bears us out that when, when you're in uniform, right, when you're in the military, you're part of a tribe, you're part of a community. And, and where I think many are, are challenged is if they, when they take the uniform off and it doesn't matter whether it's four years or 34 years, if they don't replace that sense of community with another community, that's where right. they start a downward spiral. And then the other thing is when you're in uniform, you have a sense of purpose, regardless of what you do, regardless of what, what military service you, 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 you're a part of, you have a sense of purpose. And if, and, and when you take the uniform off, if you don't replace that sense of purpose with something else, then that deepens and quickens the, the spiral that, that you're in. And, um, the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to, to what Lee was saying is you, you may or may, if you're being, if you're having these challenges right now, you may or may not be willing to do anything about it. And I completely understand that. So I'm not really talking to you now. I'm talking to the people around you that are listening. When you see someone who is, and it could be a minor challenge, it could be a major challenge, you know, just let them know that you're there for them. They may or may not be ready for you and may or may not be willing to accept your help, but that should not stop you from offering it. And at right. least let them know that you're, you, you care. At least let them know that they're not alone. Sometimes that is enough right there. Just knowing that they're not going through this by themselves, that might be the one trigger that helps them now start to deal with it a little bit more effectively and open up. So my, 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 my plea to all of you out there is if you see someone who's suffering, just be there for them, care for them, let them know that they're not alone. And, and believe it or not, that simple act right there could literally save their life. Or um, if they're not willing to go to that extreme, at least help them start to get on the path to mending. And so I, I just love the two of you and what you're doing. I think it, it is absolutely extraordinary, the program that, that, that you guys have put together. And, and Dana, you and your family, I had no idea that that, that was the origin of, of this, of this uh, program. And, and God bless you and your family for having the courage and, the, and, the, um, and, and the, just the caring to want to do something about it because it, it's so easy for folks to see others suffering and just say, hey, I'm, I'm glad it's not me. 
And, and you and your family did not do that. You, you looked at this, you saw it, and, and you did something about it. And God bless you and your family. And Dr. Joe, thank you for what you're doing to help folks who are in the program, men. And, and listen, it now becomes part of my responsibility to help fill those seats for you. And I'll do whatever I possibly can do to make that happen. But thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for taking the time with us today. And like I said, I, I just love this program. I love the two of you. I love your staff and I just appreciate what you're doing. Thank, Thank you for so giving much. us the time. Thank you so much for having us on. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you both. Yeah, I want to thank you both as well. I want to thank our editor for cutting this down so that the podcast is more about you two and Howie and I telling stories the whole time. But no, this has been a wonderful episode as always. Uh, and I want to thank you both for being here. And I'm going to jump into our close now. Again, you've been listening to Life After the Military, which is powered by PivotalMomentsMedia.com. If you love this podcast, go ahead and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, give us that five-star review. And most importantly, share it with a friend that you may know needs it. And make sure to check out PivotalMomentsMedia.com. We have a lot of channels that focus on adversity of sports, uh, inspirational women, inspiring other women, building mental fitness in the workplace, how artists of all types can overcome adversity and strengthen the mental fitness. That is our mission at PivotalMomentsMedia.com. So check that out. For Dr. Joe and Dana I, with UCLA Operation Men and Howie Cohen, I'm Lee Elias. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, keep an eye out for more episodes soon wherever podcasts can be heard. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>